John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank You for the Word of God that You've given to us. Thank You for the free and abundant access that we have to this Word. We ask, Lord, that it will not be commonplace to us, but we will treasure it and we will understand the Word Himself, that is Christ Himself, in the words of Christ here in this book. We pray, Lord, that You will guide our steps and enable us to draw near to Christ in all things. For we ask in His name. Amen. Well, a couple of uh, preliminaries or parts of introduction that we must understand about this book of John before we proceed in it verse by verse. One of them is the authorship of the book. The authorship of the book. Who wrote this book? Well, we have internal evidence and external evidence. Internal evidence that is within the text of the book of John and then external evidence. Let me just make a brief comment about the external evidence. In terms of the external evidence as to who wrote this book, after the time of the apostles, that is after A.D. 100, in the post-apostolic church, whoever cited verses of this book or whoever commented or wrote commentaries on this book in the second century onwards, after the A.D. 100, after the time of the last apostle, who was actually the apostle John, it was universally recognized that this book was written by John the Apostle, one of the twelve apostles. James and John were brothers, and the two of them were the sons of Zebedee. So this was universally recognized, prominently recognized to be the case. Then, internally, do we have evidence of that? Do we have evidence that one of the twelve disciples or one of the twelve apostles who followed Christ for three and a half years and were close to him in his ministry, that the one, John, was indeed John the Apostle, the one who wrote this book. Is there internal evidence, both within the book of John and in the Bible, for this? And the answer is yes. Firstly, let's turn, keep your finger in John chapter 1, but turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We have here in this chapter, Matthew 10, a list of the disciples early in the chapter in verses 2 to 4. In Matthew 10, 2 to 4, a list of the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles that were with Christ for three and a half years during his public ministry. And it says the following, Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first... Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. There we have the twelve men, his disciples or apostles, the twelve mentioned, all named, and in verse 2, it says, James and John are brothers, and they are both sons of Zebedee. They are both sons of Zebedee, their father. So, among the twelve, we have to include this one John, and there's only one of them called John among the twelve. The sons of Zebedee, James and John. Then, within the book of John, now let's go back to the book of John. And notice what, that we have in the, what, what we have in the book. Firstly, turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. In this chapter, especially at the beginning of the chapter, they are at the Last Supper 
and Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, correct? So at this Last Supper, we all know the Bible teaches that 12 of them were there. Not 70, not hundreds of them, not 5,000, but it was just the 12 in that upper room partaking of the Lord's Supper, right? And 12 of them who were, whose feet were washed by Christ. So... Let's begin reading at verse 21, 13, 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, That, it, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, we have the 12 there, but specifically, we have John, uh, Simon Peter, and we have G, uh, Judas, we have Jesus, and then the one that's referred to as the one leaning, verse 25, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Right? That one who was leaning on Jesus' breast at the, at the supper, and then it says in verse 23, whom Jesus loved reclining on Jesus' breast, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This one is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, or for short, the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple. We may say that among the 12 disciples, we know one was a betrayer, and though they were friends, he was a betrayer and not a true friend. That was Judas Iscariot. Then of the remaining disciples, we have um, Peter, James, and John, who were closer to Christ than the other disciples because they went with Christ to certain places that the others were not able to attend or to witness. Peter, James, and John. So, among those three, with whom did Jesus have the closest relationship, if we may say, as the best friend among the twelve? Who was it? Well, John the Apostle calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He refers to himself in, in that way, rather than saying, I, Jesus loved me. Instead of saying, I and my, me, myself, and I, instead of using those phrases, he's referring to himself with some distance because he's trying not to put attention to himself. So, but he does say, the one Jesus loved. Okay, so we know that the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, was right there leaning on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. Okay? Now, turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. John 19, 26. Jesus is on the cross. He's on the cross. And the disciples have left him and fled. However... One of the disciples comes closer and is standing there by the cross with Jesus' mother. They fled, yes, but then one comes back and witnesses Jesus dying on the cross. He's close enough to hear these words. Notice John 19, and it says verse 26. 19, 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby... He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. See that? Mary, the mother of Jesus, is right there at the cross. The disciple whom he loved is right there. And Jesus, before he dies, says to his mother, Behold your son. And says to the disciple, Behold your mother implying, John, the disciple whom I love, please take care of my mother after I die. Okay? Assuming that she's a widow also by that time, right? She's a widow. So, 
That's what instruction is given there. Now, this disciple who witnessed it says what? In chapter 19, verse 35. He's still there, and he says in chapter 19, verse 35, And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. He's saying that I'm a witness, and he's saying I was there, and I'm telling you this so that you believe. Okay, now let's go further to chapter 21. Chapter 21, John 21, verse 20. Chapter 21, verse 20. At this point, Christ has risen from the dead. They have eaten a meal together of fish and loaves. They've eaten this at, at breakfast. And then Christ is dialoguing with Simon Peter. But another disciple is there. And notice, it says, verse 20, 21, 20. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? After the resurrection, it is this John, the apostle, one of the twelve, and it, there it clearly says that Peter was wondering what's going to happen to John. Christ had just said to Peter what was going to happen to him after Jesus ascended into heaven, but Peter is curious about John, and John is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper, and the one who asked Jesus the question, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So who could this be? It has to only be one of the 11 disciples and it has to be John. Peter, James, and John. It has to be John of those three. That is the one who wrote this book because he's saying, I was there, I was a witness, and I'm telling you these things so that you believe. Which brings us to our next point. Our next point is, why was this book written? Why was it written? And let's see. We already saw in one place, that is in chapter 1935, that it was written so that we might believe. Well, he says a little bit more about it in chapter 20, verse 30. Chapter 20, verse 30. 20, 30. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why does John the Apostle write? He says, many other signs Jesus performed, and he performed them in the presence of the disciples. Even in the presence of John, he says, Jesus performed many, many miracles in our presence. We were Eyewitnesses, we testify, we bear witness of all this, but they're not written here. But I restricted myself and wrote what I wrote in this book of John, verse 31. But these have been written, why? For the specific, special purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I wrote this so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament to be the Savior. The Son of God, that's his identity also. Meaning he has a unique relationship to the Father as deity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Believe in him and his purpose and ministry that believing you may have life in his name. How are you going to have eternal life? How are you going to be saved from your sins, forgiven of your sins, by believing in him? That's how eternal life comes, believing in him. And then one more place about why these particular words and works or actions of Christ and words of Christ are recorded here. Chapter 21, chapter 21, verses 24 to 25. This is how certain, how confident John the Apostle is about everything he's saying and why he writes for our benefit. 
right there in 24. 21, 24. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which would be written. A couple of things here to summarize our two points. The identity of who wrote this and then the purpose of writing. Verse 24, this is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his witness is true. When he says this is the disciple, which one? The one we mentioned in verse 20 who asked Jesus the question, who's going to betray you? And the one disciple that Jesus loved who leaned on his breast at the supper. This is that disciple who wrote these words. Okay, he, who wrote all of this. And he says, we know that his witness is true. We know that his witness is true. Meaning, he has absolute certainty that what he's writing is true. And 25, he could have written of many, many other things. But particularly, he wrote of these things because it is inexhaustible, or it's, uh, yes, it's inexhaustible. The world itself, he says, could not contain everything that Jesus said and did. There were so many things he said and did and implications of what he said and did. He's using hyperbole, of course, an, an exaggeration to make a point that it would be many, many volumes of books if he were to record everything. And God does not intend for us to know everything like that, but to know certain things so that we might be saved from our sins and have eternal life in Christ. That's why he wrote. Okay, one more clarification, and that is in verse 24. Did you see where it says, uh, we know? We know. But in verse 25, he says, I suppose. So is it we or is it I? I believe when he says we know, he means one or both of two things. When he says we, he's using the authorial we. An authorial we. That is, even though he himself is doing the writing, sometimes authors and even speakers sometimes will say we instead of saying I. Instead of bringing attention to themselves constantly, they will use we and kind of dissipate the attention toward themselves. Okay? Authors do this and speakers do this sometimes. That They say we instead of I all the time. And perhaps that is the reason he is doing so. But also another reason is he is still writing or testifying to truths that the other apostles also saw. Correct? That the other apostles also saw so that if people wanted to ask not only John, but to ask Peter and to ask others, they could ask them to know that these things actually did take place. This is important to note. Why am I talking about authorship and purpose? Because many people believe, this is taught in academia, it's taught in books and commentaries, especially of the last couple of hundred of years, that John the Apostle did not write it for this purpose of assuring us of how to obtain eternal life. In fact, they say that after John died, John had some disciples. John the Apostle had some disciples, a group of people. And one of them, or a group of them, they decided to write some, some literature and to fabricate some things, add some things to the story, to the tale, to the legends of what Jesus might have said or done. They added to it. And so in the book of John, we have a mixture. We have an admixture of a few kernels of facts, but really, predominantly, this is all fictitious. It's, all, it's a tale. It's legendary. It's full of uh, lies and distortions, deceit, because Jesus never really said this, and he never really did that. That's what they say. And Jesus didn't perform all these miracles. 
that John the, the Apostle is recording, the signs or the miracles that attest to who Jesus Christ really was and what he really did. And this is very, very common. Very, very common. If you pick up the average commentary on the book of John written by a modern author, they will give some credence to that belief, either full or some credence. And many pastors of various churches and denominations have imbibed it. They have imbibed it, and that's what they believe, and that's what they teach their people. But that's not what we do. This is the Word of God. This is given by the Holy Spirit of God. This is Scripture. This was written by the hand of John the Apostle, an eyewitness to the things that he heard and the things that he saw. This is who wrote this book. I say this so that we might have confidence in what we read and what we study. In the days ahead and and the weeks ahead, months ahead, when we study this book, my prayer is that we all will study, read the, the, the pages of this book, the book of John, so that we are very familiar with it and that it might equip us not only to have eternal life ourselves and assurance of eternal life ourselves, but to help our loved ones, our, our friends, our family, co-workers, classmates, whoever they might be, to help them to understand the gospel, the true gospel, and believe in this gospel. May we do so. Now let's turn to verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a succinct and famous expression right here. Uh, apart from John 3.16, which many people know, and Matthew 7.1, do not judge lest you be judged. Uh, apart from verses like that, perhaps third or fourth or the top ten verses that people have heard is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does John the Apostle mean, and why is he starting this book this way? John the Apostle believes in the dual nature of Christ. That is, he possesses a divine nature and a human nature. He believes in that, and this is what he attempts to clearly, meticulously explain to us throughout this book, that Jesus had, uh, had and has a divine nature and also a human nature. And he still does have a human nature without any sin. Glorified, perfect human nature. He has that. He has both. This is who Christ was and is. John will explain this to us verse by verse throughout this whole book. He starts off the bat in verse 1 to say, In the beginning was the Word. And he attributes deity to him in verse 1. He will, in verse 14, attribute clear, specific, unmistakable humanity in verse 14 because he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He means he became human flesh like we have and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory, God in human flesh. So, the word he speaks of in verse 1, he's not talking about the words of the pages of the Bible. He's talking about Christ who is a personal, real, tangible, historical representation or manifestation of God, the Father. That's who he is. He explains, he teaches us who God the Father is. That's why he's called the Word. He's called the Word because it was anticipated throughout the Old Testament that the Father would be revealed when Messiah, his Son, or Christ, his Son, comes into the world. So those written words would have would have their fulfillment or would have their visibility, their manifestation, declaration in a personal word from God. Christ is called many things in the Bible, right? In the book of John, he's called a shepherd. He's called the gate of the sheep, right? He's called the light of the world. And here he's called word. Why is he called the word? Because he reveals God the Father. Look at verse 18, 118. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, or your Bible may say, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. 
Who has explained the Father? No one has seen God the Father, but who has explained the Father? Who has revealed the Father to us? He, Christ, has explained Him, the Father. The Son of God has explained God the Father. 1.18 This is who Christ is in the world. That's why He's called the Word. Further, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was. In the beginning was. Why does John say it that way? Does this not remind us of the very first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The book of Genesis, and for that matter, the rest of the Bible, does not seek to prove or to go through elaborate detail as to proving the existence of God. It does not do so. It assumes the existence of God because we all know God exists. We all know Romans 1, 18 to 23 clearly teaches us that every person, even the atheist and the agnostic, even the, the atheistic Buddhist or the atheistic Hindu or the atheistic one who lives in a Christian society like ours, they all know that God exists, though they might claim atheism, according to Romans 1, 18 to 23. That's why the Bible in the book of Genesis says, in the beginning, God. But it says in the beginning, as it says right here, in the beginning. Why in the beginning? In the beginning because the world came into existence at a certain point in time. The world, the material world, the, the physical world came into existence. Time started at a certain point. Time and matter, it all started at a certain point. That in the Bible is called in the beginning. Well, just as God existed before the beginning, that's why it says in the beginning God created, without any explanation about his ex prior existence, as to justifying his prior existence, it does not justify it in Genesis 1.1. In the same way, in John chapter 1, Christ's existence is not justified. It doesn't say Christ came into existence before the beginning. Does it? Or does it not? What does it say? It says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. That is, when the world was created, the Word already existed. He was already there. So e either we have time or we have eternity, correct? In the past, we have eternity past, and eternity past was all that there was. And who existed in eternity past? God the Father, God the Son, who here is called the Word, and the Holy Spirit. No one else or nothing else existed. Not even angels existed because angels are created beings. Angels are created beings. They were created in, uh, on day one of creation. And actually, before God laid the foundation of the earth, according to Job 38.7, because it's the angels of God who rejoiced and shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. The foundation of the earth was laid on the first day of creation of the six days, and the angels were first created before God laid the foundation of the earth. So... Only God existed in the beginning. And what does John say about Christ our Lord? That He existed before the beginning. In the beginning was. He does not say in the beginning became or in eternity past He was created and then He created the world or anything like that. He doesn't say it that way. He says He was already there. Just as God the Father was already there creating the world. Not only do we hear, see here that the Word is existing in eternity past in verse 1. Notice here in John chapter 17. Turn to John chapter 17. John 17 verse 5. 17.5. This is Christ praying to the Father. And he says in 17 verse 5. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. God, God the Father had glory before the world was. And Christ says here, I had that glory with you before the world was. Before the world was created, I was with you and we shared equal glory as deity, as being divine, as being the only God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The two and the three, the Spirit, they all had glory before the world was. So Christ existed before the world was. Further, John chapter 1, verse 1 says, And the Word was with God. The Word was with God. This is explaining His re relationship to the Father and even to the Spirit. Perhaps the emphasis is with the Father, but we cannot exclude the Holy Spirit in this because we know Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons are one God. The Word was with God. That is explaining, just like John 17, 5, that they existed in eternity past. They had a loving relationship with one another. They had no discontentment. They had nothing like that. Because people think that God or the gods, if they believe in many gods, that for a long, long time in the heavens, this pantheon of gods, that they existed, and even they think this about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that they, though they existed and had a relationship with one another, they were uh, discontent. They were uh, malcontent. They were edgy. They were looking for something to do. They were twiddling their thumbs. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to eat. Or they wanted somebody to be created or something to be created to praise them and to give them more uh, glory or food or drink or praise or something of that nature. People actually think that way. God created the world because of us. He really wanted us. He really needed us. And God could not do without us. People think that way. But whether within Christianity or outside of Christianity. Yet, the Bible teaches that there was harmony, there was fellowship, there was no disunity, there was no discontentment in God or with God. That is Father, Son, and Spirit. They all existed in harmony. Father, Son, and Spirit. And to see this in further detail, you would... We need to do an exposition or read and study John chapter 17 where Christ makes it very plain about the harmony and the love that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have toward one another and how they have willingly given that to us. And we are brought into that to participate in that. Not because God lacked anything. He was needy or He needed something to do as though He was bored or twiddling his thumbs in heaven. No, not for that reason at all. Next, John 1.1 1, 1 says, And the Word was God. The Word was God. It does not say the Word was a God. You may have come across cultists who say the Word was a God, and they make this to mean that we have God, the Father, and then we have a lesser God, Jesus Christ. Well, firstly, the Greek of this passage, the Greek, original Greek language of this passage, cannot and should not be translated, the word was a God. That's number one. They say that it can, but it cannot. And that's number one. Number two, the Bible does not teach that there is any second God. Any second or third or fourth or fifth or 1,000 or 2,000 or 333 million, any other gods are by definition false gods. So this passage could not be teaching that we have a true God, God the Father, who is God Almighty, and then we have a secondary lesser God who is the Word, who is a God, but not possessing the authority and the glory and the nature of God the Father. No, that's not true. 
It cannot be that way because either there is only one true God or there's not. Or there has to be two or three or 333 million true gods. That's the way it works. Logically, that's the way it has to work. And even biblically, that's the way it has to work. There is only one true God. And this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did not Christ say, John 5, 44. John 5, 44. He said, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? The one and only God. There is only one true God. This means that if there's only one true God, Jesus Christ called the Word, He is also called God. You see what the Scripture teaches? There's only one God. The Father is called God. Here the Son is called God. And even the Holy Spirit is called God in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. He's called God there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all called God. Therefore, the three must be one God. Now, to clarify, when it says the Word was God, we're talking about Christ's divine nature. We're not talking about His human nature. We're talking about His divine nature. Because His human nature is human. But in terms of His other nature or His first nature, that is His divine nature, it has deity. He possesses deity. That's what we're talking about. His divine nature, not His human nature. Because His human nature is human. But His divine nature is divine, just like the Father and just like the Holy Spirit. A second clarification we must keep in mind is when we're talking about Christ, um, we're not talking about Him being deity. We're not talking about anything physical or anything tangible. We're not talking about anything material that you can touch. Because it says in John 4, 24, God is spirit. John 4, verse 24 says, God is spirit. And in Luke 24, 36 to 39, Luke 24, 36 to 39, it teaches there that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. So a spirit is intangible, immaterial, without any physical properties. A spirit is invisible. And flesh is the opposite of spirit. Flesh is physical and material, but not spirit. So since God is spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whose very name says spirit, they are intangible in their divine nature. The Father does not have a body of flesh and bones, contrary to the cult of Mormonism founded by Joseph Smith. Contrary to, to that, the Father does not have a body of flesh and bones. Christ, the Son, had a body when He was born of the Virgin Mary. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. He obtained or received an additional nature, a human nature. But before that, and while He's on the earth, and for all eternity future, His invisible Spirit is a divine Spirit, the Son of God. That's who Christ is. And the same with the Holy Spirit. No physicality, no material nature. He's the Holy Spirit. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. Now also, just for a quick reference, people say the Bible does not teach uh, that Jesus is called God. Nowhere does the Bible say Jesus is called God. I'd just like to give you a few references. Seven, actually. Seven references it so happens in the New Testament. There are seven places where specifically Christ is given the name God. God. Our first one is right here in John chapter 1, verse 1. The Word was God. A second one is John 1, 18. John 1, 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, according to some translations, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Does it not call Him God, the only begotten God? We're talking about Christ, the only begotten Son of God. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. When Thomas, one of the twelve disciples, could not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus personally appeared to him. John chapter 20, verse 20, uh, 28. 
20:28. What did Thomas say to Christ when he discovered that it indeed was Christ who rose from the dead and personally appeared to him? What does he call him? Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. He exclaims, My Lord and my God. He did not mean it, as we sometimes say these words, in taking God's name in vain. He did not say, Oh my God, like some people say when they're surprised at something. That is taking God's name in vain and that's a sin. He did not mean it that way. He meant it in faith. He says, my Lord and my God. That's what he exclaimed, declared to Christ. And we know that to be the case because of verse 29. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. See, Jesus acknowledges that he then believed. He doesn't rebuke him for taking God's name in vain. He acknowledges that he believed. It would have been better if he had not seen Christ to believe, but he still, he believed. Next example, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Acts 20, 28, it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Well, who purchased with his own blood? Christ did, right? But who's, well, what is Christ called right there? The church of God, which he purchased. There, the name God is attributed to Christ. Another is Romans chapter five, uh, 9. Romans chapter 9, Romans 9, verse 5. Romans chapter 9, verse Five says, Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. Meaning, the blessed God forever. Amen. That may be a better way to render this. It says, Christ, according to the flesh, means he has a human nature, and he is over all, he's the ruler over all, and he is the blessed God forever. Amen. Christ is called the blessed God. Then shall we turn to Titus. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. As you're finding your way to Titus, if you were to be asked the question, who's going to return? Who came the first time and who's going to return in the, sec in the second time? your answer would be the obvious Christ is going to return, right? Not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, but in a personal, visible sense, tangible, physical body, Christ is returning. First coming, second coming. So, Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, Titus 2, 13, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. What does the Apostle call, uh, Paul call Christ? Christ Jesus. But he calls him our great God and Savior. He's our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Next is Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Just a couple of pages to Hebrews. Hebrews 1. Do you remember we read this earlier? And in 1 verse 8, God the Father is speaking. God the Father is speaking. And verse 8 says, But of the Son, He says. The Father says. So the Father is speaking of His Son. And what does He say? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. That is, the Father is addressing His Son and he calls him, O God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The God, God the Father calls his own son God. Next, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2, 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and 
an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He, he says, our God and Savior. Our God and Savior. And one more, and that is 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. 1 John 5, 20. Almost at the end of the letter. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. Who is the Him who is true? In His Son, Jesus Christ. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He just mentioned Jesus Christ, right? This is the true God and eternal life. This is the true God in eternal life. Who is the true God in eternal life? Jesus Christ, that he just mentioned. The true God and eternal life. Now, these scriptures are important because many people reject and deny this truth. The Bible calls him God in these places. It calls him Lord. It calls him many other names that are only applicable to God. And we must believe in his divine nature because if we don't believe in His divine nature, how can He save us from our sins? Only God can save us from our sins. Correct? A man cannot save us even if there were one perfect man. Hypothetically, if Adam or anybody after Adam was hypothetically perfect, who can a perfect man save? A created being, a man. He can only save himself. Right? He can only save himself. If he doesn't sin, then he saves himself. He can't save other people. He can only save himself. But if God appears in flesh with a perfect human nature, then he, sinless human nature, dying on the cross, if he dies, he doesn't die for himself because he has no sin. He dies for us because his divine nature and human nature are joined together for our benefit. This is why we cannot ever give up belief in the divine nature of Christ. And later we'll see even the human nature of Christ. We cannot give up. Now, let's return to the book of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 2. John 1, 2. All that he said in verse 1, he summarizes in verse 2. If we just clearly understood. If verse 1 isn't clear, he attempts to give us a succinct statement of verse 1 in verse 2. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. That's all you need to know if you have the Holy Spirit and a correct understanding of these words in the pages of Scripture. If you have the Holy Spirit and a correct understanding of these words of Scripture, everything he just said in verse 1 is summarized in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. That's all you need to know. I'm saying this because you will not need, you would not need somebody to constantly reinforce to you and you would not have so many doubts whenever critics of the Bible or false teachers of the Bible are coming your way and trying to undermine you. It is so clear. He was in the beginning with God. And that tells you everything you need to know about verse 1. Summarized there in verse 2. I say this because whenever you encounter false teachers, cultists, liberals, whatever you want to call unbelieving people who don't believe the plain teaching of the Bible, they will make excuses and they will try to fudge and manipulate the Bible into saying this or into saying that. They're not carefully reading it with the illumination, with the understanding of the Holy Spirit to make it plain and clear. But for us, we who have the Holy Spirit, when it says He was in the beginning with God, okay, there was a beginning of the world, but Christ existed before that. 
He possessed the, the deity and the glory that the Father had, the Son had, He had with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. They lived in perfect harmony and contentment as eternal God before the world existed. So good, let's believe that. We've been saying before the world existed. Well, how did the world come into being? Verse 3. How did the world come into being? All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Who created the world? Your answer might be God, which is right. Your answer might be God the Father, which is right. Your answer here, you can have an additional answer, that is Christ. The Son of God created the world. The Father created the world. The Son created the world, and even the Holy Spirit created the world. Genesis 1-2 says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. What was He doing? He was not just a spectator. He was creating. He, he was not just enjoying uh, something amazing that He just created. He was the creator of it. That's why it says in Genesis 1-2, The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Job 33-4 he says, the Spirit of God made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job 33.4 Attribution of creatorship to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God made me. Job 33.4 But in this verse, John 1 verse 3, it's speaking specifically of the Son of God, the Word, Christ. It's saying... All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the Creator of all things. He's the Creator of all things. It does not say He's the Creator of all other things. Some cultists, false religionists, who want to say that Christ was the first one created, and then Christ created all other things, cannot do so because verse 3 says all things. It does not say all other things or it does not say most things. It says all things came into being by Him. All things. Let's emphasize this point from Colossians 1. Colossians 1 verse 16. Corinthians Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Colossians 1, verse 16. This is the Apostle Paul describing Christ. Colossians 1, 16. For by Him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. 17 also. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Verse 16. This is about Christ. The Apostle Paul teaches us about Christ and what He created. Notice in 16. By Him all things were created. You see that word, all things? That phrase, all things, it says it in verse 16 again. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And in 17, two times. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. In verses 16 and 17, the original language and the English translations, unless you're dealing with a false translation, English translations will say all things, but not say all other things. All things. So Christ is the eternal God and the creator of all things. He's not one of the creatures who created the rest of the creatures. You see? And then where are these? Or, or what are these creatures? Notice in 16. In the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Then he says thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, which are names for angels, different kinds of angels. So, He made things in the heavens. That means God, Christ created the angels. That's why the angels worship Him in Hebrews 1.6. Let all the angels of God worship Him. He created the angels. He created everything on the earth. Things we can see or things we can't see. And verse 17 says, 
He is before all things. Which means, that's just like John 1.1, 1, 1, when, when it says, In the beginning was the Word. He existed before all the things He created. Christ is the Creator. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the world. So we should worship Him as Creator, but also, John is summarizing, of course, in this first paragraph, He's also our Redeemer. He described His nature in verses 1 to 2. He described His creatorship in verse 3. And then in verses 4 and 5, He describes His role as our Redeemer. Verses 4 and 5. I say Redeemer, and I'll explain in just a moment what I mean by that. Notice it says in verse 4, In Him was life. In Christ was life. And the life, the life that He possesses, was the light of men. So His life produces light in us and even life in us. What He possesses comes to us. Verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In my margin, it says, or overpower. You might have a footnote, or your main text might say, overpower, or overcome. Overpower or overcome. Conquer. Uh, seize. Something of that nature. Um, lay hold of it. I think that comprehend is not the best way to translate this word. I think the best way is to translate it, overpower it. Why? For, for a couple of reasons. One, what is, this, what is this analogy he's using? He's talking about spiritual life. But he's using the analogy from the physical life of Genesis chapter 1, is he not? That God had life and then he gave life into the world because he created the world. God is light, he had light. God said, let there be light and there was light. So how could God say it and it appear unless God first owns it? He first has that in himself. He has light. So that's what he gave to men. And in Genesis chapter 1 on the first day, what existed first? Did light exist or darkness exist? I'm talking about the physical world. Did darkness or light exist? Darkness existed first. So once God spoke on the first day, when there was darkness all over the globe, what happened? God said, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And there was evening and morning, day one. Genesis 1, 3-4 says that, right? So when the light was spoken into existence... What happened to the darkness? Did it hang around? Did, did it chum up with the light? No, it didn't do that. It dissipated. It disappeared, right? For a time, for half of the day. So for half of the day, there was darkness. And then the other half of the day, there was light. And the light, when it came into existence, the darkness disappeared. It wasn't there. It overcame it, right? It overpowered it, and the darkness went away. That's what happened in the physical world, in creation. John then is using that background and telling us about our spiritual world that we are dead or lifeless. We don't have that. And then what Christ has, He gives to us. He gives us some of that. And then the darkness we have because of our sin, because of our deserved wrath of God upon us because of our sin, Christ, when He shines the light in our soul, then that darkness goes away. And we have light. We can see. We can understand. And we have this new love of God, new desire for Him. And we know we belong to Him. Because His light has shone forth in us. He has done that for us. So, He is talking about what Christ does for us to give us life and light as our Redeemer. That's what He means here. I say this because... Verses 4 and 5 are not teaching that God gives light in terms of spiritual light to every individual throughout the whole world, always, in all periods of time. It's not teaching that. Some interpreters have misunderstood these verses to teach that that's what this verse is teaching, or the, the verses 4 and 5 are teaching. It's not teaching that everybody has a little bit 
of grace, or everybody has a little bit of faith, genuine faith in him, he just needs to act on it and do the right thing. If he just does the right thing, then salvation will come to his soul. So they say, they have done the right thing, but my friend, my neighbor has not done the right thing. They have just the same ability to believe as I have the ability to believe. I did the right thing, he didn't do the right thing. So I'm better than he. Because I did what I was supposed to do, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. That's not what this verse is teaching. Now one way in which this verse is misunderstood is this word in verse 4 when it says, the light of men. When the Bible says men, or other words like this, it doesn't necessarily mean every single person. It does not necessarily mean every individual, whether in this generation or throughout the whole history of the world. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Let me show you, for example, how the Bible uses certain words, universal words, without a universal meaning. Okay? How the Bible uses universal, comprehensive words without necessarily a universal or comprehensive meaning. In verse 4, we have the light of men. And this is Christ, the light of the world, correct? And then in verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overpower it. But it is, the darkness is overpowering the many people who never believe until the day they die. But here he says, This light overpowers the darkness. So if it overpowers the darkness, it overpowers the darkness in some of us, not all of us, correct? Then look at verse 9. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Well, is every single man enlightened so that he's saved? No. But why does he use that word? Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Notice there, he uses the word world in different ways. Verse 10, he was in the world. So he's talking about he was on the earth, correct? That's what he means in the first phrase, he was in the world. In the second phrase, and the world was made through him, which means all the people of the world and all the things of the world, everything in the world was made through him, as it says in Verse 3, all things came into being by him. Then notice the third way he uses the word world in verse 10. And the world did not know him. How is it using the word? It's saying the unbelieving world, the unbelieving world did not know him, did not believe in him. Correct? Then verse 11. Verse 11, why is he using words like this? Because of verses 11 to 13. He came to his own. Who are his own? The Jewish people. He came to the Jewish nation, to Israel or the Hebrew people. Verse 11. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He doesn't mean that in an absolute sense, right? Because John is a Jew. The, the 11 apostles were Jews. Many of the early disciples during the time of Jesus' ministry, they were Jewish believers, true Jewish believers in Christ. And even in the first century of the history of the Christian church, in the first century during the apostolic era, many of the early disciples, true believers in the churches in the various cities throughout the Roman Empire, the majority of them were Jewish people. There were some Gentiles, but the majority were Jews. But here he says... His own did not receive him. So you, we know what he's saying. He means that the majority of the Jewish people did not believe. The majority of the people in the local churches were Jewish, but the majority of the nation of the Jews didn't believe. That's why he says, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Understood? Well then how do we receive him? And what are we called? Verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 
In verse 12, he calls us many. Notice that. As many as received him. He calls us many. In verse 12, he calls us children of God. And we are children of God because we believe in his name. We are inheritors. We are heirs or children of God because we believe in his name, in the name of Christ. Correct? But then, is every creature or every human creature created by God a child of God? In this verse, no. In this verse, he says many are children of God. So then the next question is, how did we become a child of God? How did we believe in his name? What was the source? What was the foundation? What was the cause? What is the ultimate reason? What was the ultimate trigger or the hinge on which we became a child of God and become a part of the many who were enlightened? The many whose darkness was overcome by the light of Christ. Verse 13 is the key. Who were born not of blood. He's saying we are born spiritually not of blood. It means it doesn't matter who your father was, who your mother was, who your ancestors were. It doesn't matter whether you, whether you are a Jew or you are a Roman, or you are an American, or you are a Mexican, or an Indian, or a Chinese, it doesn't matter. It, blood does not matter. Who your ancestors were does not matter. Nor of the will of the flesh. The will of the flesh. The will of the flesh. The flesh is in us, right? We have that old nature, the flesh. It's not our will that saves us. There he's removing free will. Because the flesh produces death, Romans 8, 5 to 8. The flesh is no good for us. It doesn't help us. The flesh harms us. And it is the reason we deserve to die forever in hell. So it's not the will of the flesh. If it were dependent on the will of the flesh, many, 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 many more people would be saved. Would they not? Because they would say, well, I, yeah, I did it. I did it. I have the power and I did it. I save." Myself, then verse 13 says, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of man. There is no man other than yourself, even your, yourself is excluded, your ancestors are excluded. And then he says, no, there's no other man, will of man. The will of man cannot save you, cannot make you born, spiritually born. It cannot do that. It cannot make you a part of the many of verse 12 or the children of God of verse 12 or of those who believe in His name. The blood doesn't do it. The flesh doesn't do it. And no man can do it because we're all sinners. So who does it? What is the cause? The ultimate and most important source of our salvation. Where does it originate? He says, but of God. So, if we are born of God, born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, then we have this darkness that was in us overcome by the light of Christ. Then we are now able to believe in His name. Then we are called children of God. Then we have this right. Then we are a part of the many who are saved. I saw a great multitude in heaven which no one could count. Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Taken from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. So this is who we are. Doesn't matter who we are, Jew or Gentile. If Christ's redemptive light has come inside of us, it removes darkness, overpowers it. And we have His light, we have His life. Let's believe as John has written for that, that purpose, the purpose to believe in His name and believe accurately, believe correctly. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.